It's August the 5th, 2019. I'm Bob Johnson. I'm Dave Dunham. And this is Conversations at the Corner. And Dave, we are, as a nation, I think reeling a little bit over the two shootings that took place this past weekend. And it just brought back to my mind the whole issue of lament and the fact that we don't tend to do that very well. Mm-hmm. I was reading in Ezekiel this morning and noticed again how many different times the prophet laments the fall of Jerusalem, even the fall of the north. He laments the fall of Tyre. This comes after Jeremiah, which is not only uh, many chapters of lament, but then the very book of Lamentations uh, as well. So it's really clear when you look at the prophets and then when you look at the Psalms that are Mm -hmm. given to lament that the Lord wants us to have a place in our lives for lament. But as we were talking today, we don't tend to do that very well. What do, you, what do you think are some of the contributing factors as to why, and first of all, let's just talk about here in our Western culture, sure. why, why we just don't know what to do with lament. Yeah, I mean, I think one, one reason is generally ignorance. So I think we just don't, we don't know how to think rightly about the idea of lament. So I think some of what we are, um, you know, often thinking about, we're miscategorizing lament as sort of, um, um, uh, I think the expression uh, one of our staff members used this morning was uh, wallowing. Uh, this idea that, you know, instead of being able to grieve and to mourn a loss, uh, we can, from the outside looking on on that person, say, well, they're just kind of wallowing in their situation. Um, and so some of it is just ignorance about the idea of lament. Um, uh, we just don't really know what that is or how to think about it rightly. I think some of it, too, stems from the fact that we're, um, we are a fast-paced, busy culture in the American West here. And uh, we have a tendency to think in terms of productivity and accomplishment. Uh, and so we apply that even to our relationships. And so when we talk about you know, grieving with others, we tend to think in terms of what do I need to say to make them feel better, put the check in my box, and then move on. And we think other people ought to think that way too, you know, well, you need to just sort of come to terms with this is the loss that you've experienced and move on. And so we even sort of unintentionally have in our minds a a point of time at which we think someone should get over their grief, over their loss, over their their mourning or their traumatic experience and, and move on. And that's the way we tend to think. And, and we would never, uh, well, we probably wouldn't say it that way, but that's the way we tend to operate. And so the idea of walking with someone through a season of lament and grieving with them and mourning with them and not, not attempting to fix a problem, I think that seems foreign to us. I think that seems incredibly difficult to us. Um, both because it doesn't make sense to us in our current context, but also because we just tend to be very busy. 
uh, we're, we're too busy to take that kind of time uh, and help someone. And I think that that busyness is, is shallowness. Mm. And we are not able to really experience all of what it means to be human. I'm reminded of in John 11 when Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And even though we joke about it being the shortest verse of the Bible, the verb that is yeah. used for weeping, Jesus wept, was is, is an intense verb. He fully entered into the grief and the loss yeah. of, of Lazarus. And I'm, I'm reminded, even when I read at the graveside from 1 Corinthians 15, I, I feel this sense of almost offense that people might be getting because when Paul talks about what happens in in anticipation of the resurrection, he doesn't mince words. He talks about that this perishable, mm -hmm. it does inherit the imperishable. But this body is, is sown in dishonor. Mm -hmm. And even in our funeral home industry, I see how there's no more space for grief anymore. Everything is a celebration of life. And I understand we want to celebrate a life, mm -hmm. but if everything is happy, 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 and we're not going to give any room in our lives for, for grief and sorrow, then what do you think happens to a person who doesn't know how to grieve, doesn't know how to sorrow? the person who's experienced loss and they live in a world that doesn't know what to do with that. What, what does that do for that person? A, a couple of thoughts come to my mind. The, the first thing that comes to my mind is I think that what we end up doing is we end up diagnosing normal, healthy sadness as a disorder, which we've done in our culture. Um, you know, the, the diagnosis of depression, you know, just went astronomically through the roof. Um, one of the guys that helped to write the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Mental Disorders, Volume 3, so this is a number of years back, uh, Volume 3, actually after they published it came out and said, I think we did a disservice to the people of, of our country. Um, I think we made healthy sadness a disorder um, because we didn't take into consideration issues of context and how that played out and why, why this person was sad. So I think in some cases, you know, a person who's just experiencing normal sorrow and loss is told, oh, well, you need to go on an antidepressant or you need to go see a psychiatrist or you know, need to go see a psychologist because you have something wrong with you. Well, they, they, they may have something wrong with them or they may just be grieving as a normal, healthy response to a real loss. We feel what we feel because we love what we love. So when, when something I love is attacked or wronged or lost, then I, the right response ought to be to grieve. So I think, I think we do a disservice to one another when we create this idea that sadness is always maladaptive, it's always broken, it's always bad, it's always wrong. At the same time, I think the other side of that is 
we cause people to live in greater senses of isolation, greater senses of despair and despondency. So instead of sadness drawing community to me and me responding to community and embracing the love and affection and care of people who are willing to invest in my sorrow, what tends to happen is people get tired of my sorrow and instead of being drawn to them, I'm, I'm pulling more and more away and I'm never able really to, to process my grief and go through it. Not, not get over it. I don't know that you ever really get over grief, but you go through it. You begin to navigate it. And so I think for some people what ends up happening is they get stuck and they spend much of their life in sorrow over losses intense sorrow over losses that happened 20, 30 years ago because they've never been able to properly grieve and navigate that, and they've not had the help to do that. So I want to cover basically three things in the, in the time remaining. First of all, how should we think about sorrow and mm-hmm. lament? Uh, secondly, how do we help those who are lamenting? And particularly in our own congregation, because we always are facing uh, times of of sorrow, different ones. And then thirdly, you have a book Mm. that has been really helpful that I've I've read as well that uh, I want you to talk a little bit about as a resource that I think people will will find. Um, But on, on, on that first topic, I want to help our people think about the culture and what it's doing to us. The fact that we are, we've given so much of our attention to media, uh, mm-hmm. our, our phones uh, are telling us all the time, pay attention to me, do this, do this. And I don't think we realize how much we are being manipulated. I, I've thought of this very issue when we hear news, for example, for watching television and the news tells us there's this shooting in El Paso. There's this shooting that takes place in Dayton. And of course, this comes on the heels of other shootings that have been going on all of the time. And so we're, first of all, kind of at sensory overload with this information anyway. But you you get this terrible, terrible news that is overwhelming. And then, boom, we go to commercial, which is advertising a new, new movie that's coming out or uh, a new dish detergent that you ought to try. And then they come back and it's the weather. And I think that that lends itself to what you were talking about is that, okay, we had our time for sorrow and shock, but now get over it. And we got to get on to, to the rest of life. Yeah. And I, how much of a factor do you think that is Mm -hmm. to not even giving people space in their life to be able to think deeply about these things? Yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of, we're desensitized to to problems, to heartache and grief. We're we're kind of just um, numb to it until it's our own. Uh, And then part of what happens when it's our own is we just don't, we don't know how to frame this. We don't know how to experience this and think about this because we just don't think about grief and sorrow. And so we even sometimes try to live in denial of it, put it off, kind of, uh, you know, pretend ourselves like, okay, I've just got to move on and, and you know, sort of grin and bear it all. 
Um, and so we're not prepared to navigate it, but we're also pretty devastated when our friends aren't prepared to navigate it. But culturally, we have just been equipped to think in terms of, of uh, oh, just another news story, just another piece of information, oh, just another horrible thing happening in the world. And because there are so many horrible things happening in the world, and, and as, as you had mentioned even this morning as we were talking, there's a sense in which no one has the bandwidth to, to think intelligently and carefully about all these things. So instead, what we tend to do is we tend to just kind of shut it all out. Instead of taking the time to think about any of it, we just don't think about any of it. Um, not the book I was thinking of, but there's another book that came out, I think, last year by a guy named Alan Noble called Disruptive Witness. Um, and he talks about the sense in which we are all um, just sort of constantly and perpetually um, uh, occupied. We're busy. We're busy with our phones. We're busy with our sports updates. We're busy with uh, all these things. And the fact that we never take time to think and process and analyze. And uh, so we even have categories uh, for news articles now that we call hot takes, which are just, you know, the immediate response to a situation probably before I had all the facts or all the facts have even come out. Um, so we're just so quick to read and move on and get the next piece of information and the next piece of information and the need for us to, to be able to slow down and to take time to just process the world as it is, let alone our own experiences and the experiences of our friends. And so when you do have somebody who is impacted mm. by grief for a longer period of time, then that contributes to that whole sense of, hey, what's wrong with you? Yeah. you? You know, it's, hey, man, it's been two weeks, three weeks, you know, a month. You should be over that by now. And that is so unrealistic. Yeah. And and I I would argue unhuman. Yeah. 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 You you become, I mean, if, if Jesus, knowing he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, takes the time to weep, uh, that's what the true human experience is supposed to be. That's what the right experience is. And the sort of numbness to pain, either our own or other people's, is, is subhuman. It is not the way God intended us to be. And Jesus is the example of what it's supposed to look like. I mean, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus, and he still takes the time to genuinely weep. Now, ironically, and this is on a transition to the next point, but I was listening to a church growth expert a few years ago who talked about how church should never be a place for sadness because people are experiencing plenty of that throughout the week. They need something that's going to make them feel good. Mm -hmm. And so you, as a leader in the church, have a responsibility to make certain that everybody has a good experience and that they go home wanting to come back the next week. And so I think that's probably contributed that, that whole idea of happy, 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 happy church. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to deal with hard issues and where people have to grapple with yeah. these things. And it's almost as if we have left the impression that God's word cannot speak to the truly broken. They don't belong yeah. with yeah. us. They just have to stay over in the corner by themselves. And until they get better, that's when they can come back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's the metaphorical Sunday bests. So because that's not normal, most of us kind of, if that's the church we're a part of where there's no brokenness, we feel like there's something wrong with me because everybody else has it together. 
Um, but I'll tell you, the, the, one of the most memorable experiences I ever had in church was the first Sunday after my father died. Went to church, did not want to be there, did not want to sing, did not want to participate. You know, my life had come to a screeching halt. Everybody else's was going on as usual. And we stood and we sang, and I did not sing, but I watched as other people sang. And I, I can vividly remember looking across the auditorium and seeing a, there was a husband and wife, and he had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and they sang, Glory to God Forever. And I looked across the room, and I saw a mother, a single mom, whose son earlier that year had died when uh, uh, his crossbow misfired and shot him through the heart. And uh, she sang, Glory to God Forever. And I saw another couple, an older couple, whose son had had a heart attack while playing tennis, and they sang, Glory to God Forever. And I thought, you know, I don't feel like singing that today. But because I knew their story, because I knew their suffering, and because they sang it, I had faith that I would want to sing it again one day. And so there's something about witnessing suffering in the church that allows us to, to you know, sort of, uh, um, I mean, Paul talks about with the comfort that God has given you, you're to comfort others. And sometimes we do that intentionally, and sometimes we do that unintentionally. But by not talking about suffering, by not knowing about the suffering of others, I would never have received that comfort from God. And if you hadn't known those stories, yes. if all of that sorrow had been hidden from yes. you, then you would not have the appreciation for what yeah. and how they sang that day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they didn't know they were singing for me, but they were. God was using their experiences and their joy in that moment, in that season of life, to help me in my season of life. Well, I think it's exactly what Paul means when he says we are to sing to one another psalms, yes. hymns, and spiritual mm -hmm. songs, because there are those times in which we are so overwhelmed with grief and sorrow that we cannot sing, but the person next to us is singing for yes. us. Yeah. But next Sunday, it will be my turn. Yeah, my mm -hmm. turn is to sing for yeah. them. Yeah. So what are a couple things that we can do to be better lamenters? And how can we have a more effective um, ministry to one another in, in, in people's grief? Well, briefly, the, the things that come to mind are, one, I think it's valuable just to know, lament is just an attempt to process my pain with God. So it's not just crying and grief, it's trying to process my pain with the Lord. So I'm going to the Lord, I'm praying, I'm crying out, I'm, I'm seeking Him in the midst of what I'm experiencing. And so as a friend who's trying to love other people well in that, I think I want to, one, give them the space to do that, so not sanctify, you know, everything by saying, well, you just got to trust the Lord more and then it won't hurt so much. But give people the space to ask those questions, to wrestle, to say things that might make me feel a little uncomfortable, like, for someone to say, how could God do this? And my gut response might be to say, well, let's, you know, textually, you know, the, the, the God of the universe did this and this. Look, let's allow them to ask that question and wrestle for a little bit. I don't need to give a theological answer in the moment um, and not turn immediately to Romans and say, you know, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Well, it still hurts right now. And that's a true verse, but that might not be the best starting place. So I think probably the impulse to have an answer should be suppressed at the start of those lamenting relationships. Suppress that need to give an answer, to give a response, to steer people in some specific direction. Just allow people the, the space to grieve and process and weep with them. Express your sorrow with them. Pray with them. Uh, one of the things that we talked about this morning that I think is just still valuable is the idea of reading some of the, the darker psalms. Psalm 88, or looking at some of just the general psalms of lament, or reading Psalm 42, or Psalm 22, and sort of allowing people to see 
that God even understands their grief and gives word to their sorrow. Uh, he understands even their questions about him and gives them the words to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. So giving them a chance to look at those kinds of passages and reading with them with no effort to explain away their pain, just to experience it with them. Well, Dave, I think it's been a helpful conversation. I want our congregation to always have space mm -hmm. in their life to be able to um, have the room for others and their grief, to love them well. So for those who want to read a little bit more yeah. about this, uh, you, brought this you brought this book? Yeah, a book by a guy named Kelly Capick, K-A-P-I-C, Kelly Capick. He wrote a book called Embodied Hope, A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. Uh, really a beautiful read, but he has a chapter particularly on longing and lament and walks through what lament is and how to, how to do that. And so I think it's a worthwhile, at least for that chapter, but it's a, a great book overall. All right. Dave, thanks for the time. And uh, church family, thank you for listening in, and uh, we'll catch you uh, next time on our Conversations at the Corner.